Your ride says a lot about you. Guys understand this, I think, a little bit more than women. For instance, on Carvel here on, out on South Street, I've seen Bentleys and Lamborghinis, and, and around the corner, there's even Billy Joel's motorcycle collection. It's not a shop. You can't buy anything there. He's just showing off all of his motorcycles. In an Oyster Bay, we have a car show every Tuesday night in the summer. People love showing just what they've got. And they all, it's always with the hood popped. They want to show what's under the hood. And maybe you ladies understand a different sort of uh, perspective from maybe the red carpet. Uh, we just had an award show season. I mean, they're like 15 thousand award shows now. And so all, there's all this talk about what people are wearing and, you know, what designers and, and all of that. And people look very carefully to see what people are in, whether it's their cars or their outfits. It says something about who they are. It says something about what they consider important. Well, on the original Palm Sunday, Many were looking forward to Jesus, but it's because they all had an agenda that they wanted, to, wanted Jesus to fill. They were looking for a king that would cast off the bondage of Roman rule and give them their land back. They were looking for a political king, a great warrior king of great stature and strength. And so they celebrated, and they said words, rightly so, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they should have been looking more carefully, because they would have seen some very strange things that would have informed them about the kind of king Jesus came to be. See, Pastor Bill Hybels says that on that day, everyone Every celebrant had an agenda, but Jesus had a mission. So today, we will look carefully at Jesus' mission by asking, what sort of king is he? In three ways. In what he rode, in how he felt, and in where he went. So first point, in what he rode. Riding a donkey, not a war horse. Passage today starts in Luke chapter 19, verse 28. You'll find it on the back of your sermon outline. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Now, some of you might be giving the ancient Near Eastern people the benefit of the doubt, thinking, 
all right, maybe, maybe a donkey was where it was at back then. Nowadays, it's not like SUVs are, are pulling in as many uh, of the sales as they used to. Now people are looking for a, more, a smaller, sleeker model. Sorry, there was no first century version of Pimp My Donkey. This was not just a donkey, but a young donkey, a small donkey, barely able to be ridden, so young that it actually still needed its mother around in order to calm its nerves because it was never used for riding yet. And so the picture... Not, is not like uh, the nice ponies that they have at, at little, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, farms and, and that sort of thing where kids can take a little ride. We're talking about an animal where your feet are pretty close to touching the ground, almost like what's the point of this animal as a vehicle? And this is what a king rides in on? The uh, sermon, the scripture reading for today from, uh, during worship was from the Gospel of John and John's version of the events of Palm Sunday. And he gives a nice helpful hint to us. And he quotes Zechariah 9.9, says, no, there's a reason. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so John in his gospel explains that this is prophetic fulfillment. Jesus is coming and fulfilling all that the Bible up to this point had said would be true about him. But why a donkey? Why something so weak? I mean, the people of Jerusalem were looking forward to someone who would be king and strong ruler over them, casting off Roman rule. And he'd have to be a pretty tough guy in order to do that. I mean, the Romans, that's where the military power and might was at. Anyone hear of Caesar? And so they would have wanted a charger, a stallion, a great war horse, because that would be indicative of the kind of king that they wanted. And we get that. I mean, you know, just here it's about muscle cars. I mean, just Shelby Mustangs. And 68, is that the right Corvette year I'm thinking of? Or, well, you see, I'll get this wrong and people will flame me on either side. Yes, I got that right. No, I didn't. And just uh, sports cars and everything, those things, those are what we desire. Those things say something about the person in it. All a donkey says is that this guy's kind of weak, kind of poor, because someone would be able to afford a better ride. But the Bible says that it says that Jesus is humble says that he will be king, but not a king based on might or power. Not that Jesus didn't have might or power. Even Satan, when he was tempting him, said, hey, you could call down angels. Just jump, and angels will catch you. 
Even Satan knew that Jesus had power. And very soon after going into Jerusalem, he's about to chase a whole bunch of businessmen out of their stalls in the temple courts. It's not a sign of weakness, but of restrained power because it would be through humility that Jesus would fulfill his mission. And usually a king comes from a military campaign with a huge train, a caravan behind him of his soldiers, strong and mighty in battle, and then of his captives, the bravest and the most beautiful and the most intelligent of the land that he had just conquered. And who was following after Jesus? Instead of mighty soldiers, we have disciples. And instead of those who are conquered, you see, a Roman general bringing this captive train into the city, he's leading them, these captives, into slavery and bondage. Who is Jesus Christ leading? Those who used to be lepers, those who used to be blind, those who used to be lame and deaf and dumb and demon-possessed, and even at least one dead guy. And Jesus is leading those people that he came to serve. And those people he came not to conquer, but to set free. And there we see what sort of king that Jesus is. What sort of king he came to be. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And so, this is the first picture that we see. Jesus is our humble king, and he calls us to follow in his humility. Christians, how do your families and your neighbors and your co-workers see glimpses of the humble servant king, Jesus Christ, in your life, in the way that you live? Can people identify that you are Someone who has union with Christ because they see that you are one who serves. You know, Jesus told his disciples when they were arguing, who gets to sit at his right and left hand? Who gets to be great in the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, the greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who is the servant of all. Brothers and sisters, I implore you to find those places in your life, to find that attitude in your heart that says that you will serve others more than your own desires, more than your needs, more than your worries and fears. That in love 
and in humility. You will serve those who the world would consider beneath you because you know that God does not consider them beneath you. And your motivation for this is that God did not consider you to be beneath His love and the service of His Son, Jesus. But then we see a second dimension of the king that Jesus came to be in how he felt and how he acted as he was entering, sobbing, not sneering. Luke chapter 19, verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. See, when you have a ticker tape parade in your honor, you're, you're given the, you know, this wave, and you're just turning and smiling everywhere because you're on top of the world. But what was Jesus doing? As all of these people who had no idea the kind of king that he came to be were saying, Hosanna, God saves, and celebrating and saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the one we were waiting for. Instead of soaking all that in and saying, All right, I'm going to build that up in me because I'm going to need it. This is going to be a tough week. So I'm just going to remember this moment and bask in it. Jesus is sobbing, weeping as he gets closer to this city. This city that he made every step toward in his life. He knew what he was doing with deliberation. And he set his face toward Jerusalem. He knew what he was going there to do. And, and he was weeping, not over what he would be doing. In fact, Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. But he was weeping for the lost because God, in his, Jesus in his divine nature, knew that in a few short decades, the city of Jerusalem would finally be eradicated. It would be destroyed And so, that city that we're, taught, we're in our sermon series on Nehemiah are hearing about, how the walls are being built up, Jesus is weeping over this Jerusalem whose walls will be once and finally torn down. 
And so we see his heart for the lost. But it is not just for Jerusalem, not just that sad city doomed to destruction. Because these are pretty final words, aren't they? In fact, he seems to be talking about a far bigger group than just this one earthly city. He is speaking of all those who do not believe. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, isn't that our cry to every unbeliever before they die? And enemies will build an embankment against you, encircle you, and hem you in. There will be no escape. Doesn't that sound like eternal judgment from which there is no escape, from which there is no peace? And we see now the heart of our servant king who came seeking to save the lost. He knows the eternal judgment that those who do not trust in Him are destined for. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not one righteous, not even one. And for those, Jesus weeps. The kind of king who weeps for the lost. Church, what would this look like? Do we weep and do we mourn for the lost? Do we say, no, not one, Lord, let not one go without our fingerprints just on their legs, holding on to them, unwilling to see them die in unbelief? Do you spend time praying for your family members for even your children who are downstairs worshiping the Lord in the ways that they can right now? Are you still praying for their salvation? Because a lot can happen between now and the time that they profess Jesus Christ to be their Lord and their Savior. Are you praying for your neighbors and your co-workers? Do you care? Do you even see the lost? Church, let us pray that the Lord gives us eyes for our hearts that we might see all those lost, the way that Jesus, our King, sees them. You know, we just finished our Explorations Nights this past Friday. And the best part of it to me wasn't that incredible pork loin that we had on Friday night. That was good. That was really, really good. I've never had pork so good in my life. And I eat lots of pork, so I know what I'm talking about. So the best thing was seeing next door in Christianity Explored, where people were, some of them for the first time, hearing from the Gospel of Mark who Jesus was, what he came to do, and what it means to follow after him. We had more people in that new group this year than last year. And it wasn't that, oh, there were a bunch of people in church that hadn't taken it yet. This is our third time offering it. It was bigger, much bigger this year because people brought 
their families. People brought their friends. People brought their co-workers. And then God gave us one out of the air too. So just people just came in off the streets. They saw the sign on the front. They didn't just appear, well, except for that one. They came because we, the church, went out. That our desire is for them to know Jesus. That's why we're going to Haiti this summer, isn't it? We want people. We know that God has chosen people in Haiti, and we want them to know Jesus Christ. We want to share the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ with them. And if we don't go, he will send others. You know, Jesus didn't shut up these people who were saying, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, saying that he was their king. He didn't shut him up, even though they were all wrong about him in their hearts. Their words were right. And he told the Pharisees, if they don't say it, the stones will cry out. And there's this wonderful little line of a song. Let the rocks be kept silent for one more day. Silent because we are doing our glad job, our privilege of sharing Jesus Christ to those who do not know him. Will you pray to get better at sharing with and reaching the lost because you see the heart of our King who seeks the lost? You know, in John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, is this story told by Michael Card of this Maasai warrior who actually from Africa who got to meet Billy Graham because of this story I'm about to read. A Maasai warrior named Joseph. One day, Joseph was walking along one of these hot, dirty African roads and met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there, he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And the power of the Holy Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to see and to do was return to his own village and share that same good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going from door to door telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the way his had. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him and held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a waterhole and there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, found the strength to get up. He wondered about the hostile reception he had received from people he had known all his life. He decided that he must have left something out or told the story wrong. After rehearsing the message he had first heard, he decided to go back and share his faith once more. Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. 
Again, he was grabbed by the men in the village and held while the women beat him, reopening wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. And again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back. He returned to the small village, and this time, they attacked him before he had a chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him for the third and probably the last time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ, the Lord. And before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him began to weep. This time, he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had come to Christ. Christians, do people see, see the seeker of the lost in the way that you live? Do he, they hear his words in the words that you say? And I'll tell you right now, no one gets a pass on this one. Jesus Christ has commissioned us all as his ambassadors to share the glorious good news that he has come to save sinners from their sin. And so lastly, we see this kind of king that he came to be and where he went, arriving at the temple, not the palace, Luke 19.45. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Well, it's really easy to overlook this one. In fact, another, another one of the Gospels says that Jesus found that it was closed and then went out. Where does a king go when he gets to his city, when he gets to his place? He goes to the palace. That's his house. That's where his throne is. That's where his glory lies. That is the place from which he exercises his dominion and performs his role as king. But Jesus goes not to the palace, but to the temple. Why the temple? And Hebrews chapter 7 verse 27 says why. Calling Jesus the great high priest. Because we don't need any more after him. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And so, this last little glimpse of Jesus as King on Palm Sunday is the foreshadowing of how he would be the Savior King of his people. 
he would be the king of a redeemed people by laying his life down as an atoning sacrifice for their sins. This is how desperate our state is. This is how lost we are, that God himself must come and take the form of a man. And the verse in chapter the passage in Philippians 2 that I didn't finish. He humbled himself and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that is where we see our great sin. But praise be to God, that is where we even more see our great Savior. See, Hebrews says that he was perfected as our Savior. He wasn't our Savior until he died on the cross for our sins. Jesus endured all of that on purpose, deliberately. Every step, every contact, every last ounce of pain and suffering to be our Savior King and showing that there is no greater love than this, that God himself lays down his life for his friends. You know, besides being offended at the money changers and the animal salespeople in the outer courts of the temple, that was the only place that Gentiles could come to worship the living God. They weren't allowed in the inner courts. And so this place that that we would occupy if we lived back then We were crowded out of by people who were making a buck, selling appropriate money and selling appropriate sacrifices, or so they thought. When Jesus Christ overturned tables and used a cord to drive these people out, there was the mighty offense of the God who wants all nations to worship Him, but is also very practical because Jesus Christ has come, the one true sacrifice, which meant there's no more need for money changers or animal sacrifices anymore. He has come to do what needs to be, needed to be done. So how do we react to this humble king, to this king who seeks the lost, to the king who came to be a sacrifice for his people. Christians, do people see the sacrifice of Jesus in your life? Do they see, as we learned from our marriage series, how husbands are called to lay down their lives for their wives, as Christ laid down his life for the church. You know, there is no reception of the gospel without sacrifice. There would be no gospel without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you that the formula of the gospel coming to unreached peoples is usually born on the back of much sacrifice. You know, as a Korean Christian, Korean-American Christian, I give thanks to God for just the many, many men who came 
and gave their lives and died to bring the gospel to a hostile country. And God is calling us because the entire world apart from Jesus Christ is one that is hostile to the gospel. And He is calling each of us to lay down our lives for those who do not know Him. You know, each of you are here because God ignited the mission of Jesus in someone else's heart to serve you and share the gospel of grace with you, whether it was your parents or your siblings or friends or coworkers, someone. God lit the fire of the mission of Jesus in their heart that you might know Jesus. That's true of all of us, isn't it? Now, will you share in the mission of Jesus? Will you honor our King this week as we reflect on His passion and on His suffering, what He came to do, what He was willing to do so He could be called our King and our Savior? Let us invite our loved ones this Friday and Sunday and our neighbors to come and adore Him as we adore Him. You know, the irony of the first Palm Sunday is that the triumphant entry, no one knew what they were celebrating, and the real celebration came a week after when Christ was risen from the dead and accomplished what He came to do. But what do we do here on Palm Sunday? We don't perpetuate a human error. That's not what we're thinking of. Ah, think about all those suckers waving those palms and... They got it all wrong. It is not them we remember, although they do serve as a cautionary tale, don't they? We remember Jesus Christ, the King who on this day showed His mission and made it clear. Church, let us celebrate our King by sharing in His mission and thereby showing how thankful we are for His unwavering determination to endure the suffering and death that we deserved. Again, Heibel said everyone had an agenda that day. Jesus had a mission. Will you accept the mission of this King who sought after you, was humble for your sake, and died, that you might, in His name, in union with Him, find life. Will you let that change you from just the inside out as the song that we are going to sing? And will you proclaim it, as Jesus proclaimed, to all those who are weary? Come, He will give you rest. Let us pray. know that Jesus was the only one in the parade who knew why he was going to Jerusalem to die. But this side of the resurrection, we see it. Those you have called and gathered to your name, we see it clearly. Lord, break our hearts that we might weep as our Savior wept for the lost. Just 
Break our proud backs that we might be humble and serve those that the world has given up on. And give us eyes that see the sacrifice of grace in Jesus Christ, that we might sacrifice of our lives daily and moment by moment that people might see our Savior through our lives. That, just like Galatians Paul in Galatians 2.20 says, we want to say we are crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but it is Jesus Christ who lives in us. The life we live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. That is what we desire the world to see. Thank you, Father. For your son. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you, Spirit, for showing us what Jesus did. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.